1: Just the best literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, welcome back to JBL. Last time, the 1984 men's panel began discussing George Orwell's classic novel, 1984. We were focusing our discussion on the world of Winston Smith. His world is beginning to sound an awful lot like our own. Now, today the panel is back with me in the studio. So welcome back, Grant. Thank you. Welcome back, James.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So at the end of the, our last program, we were talking a little bit about Winston Smith and his his uh, desire to write a diary. And I think it, it'd be important, I, I think it's ironic that he wants to have a diary and he's, he's concerned about if people will ever read, read the truth of his life, and you know, he's written it for the future, will anyone even care? But let's talk about his job as a party member, and remember he works for the Ministry of Truth. And he works in the historical records department. So what does he do? <laughs> What's his job? Uh, well, like you said, he works
2: in the Ministry of Truth. and in is, our, in our last, Right. In our last episode, <laughs> we talked about how Ministry of Truth is really the propaganda machine, this concept of double think uh, that is throughout 1984 where uh, things are indirect contradictory contradiction to each other, like a, something can be called the ministry of truth, and it's really about creating lies, or something can be called the ministry of uh, love, and it's about re-education and torture. Um, <laughs> that That is that concept of doublethink, which is uh, th- that inherent contradiction to the belief system, which was so integral to the story that Orwell was telling here. Anyway, Winston Smith's specific job, he's one of the rewriters. He works in the historical records department And every day he gets these little slips of paper that come across his desk, which require revisions. And it's his job to go back through all their previous records, their newspapers, their books, um, anything like that. And any reference that has been deemed outdated or anything that has changed, it's his job to go back and rewrite that in the historical record. So there would be no historical record of the original, he's gone back and and amended it to whatever it might be. So say, for instance, in this fictional world Orwell's created, there's really only three countries. You've got uh, Oceania, which is where Winston Smith is. You've got East Asia and you've got Eurasia. And the three of those countries are invariably in some alliance of two versus one. And so Oceania is constantly shifting between being allies with East Asia and fighting against Eurasia, or being allies with Eurasia and fighting against East Asia in this constant state of war. Um, and as those ali- alliances switch, one of the things that Winston Smith has to go back and do is go back in history and eliminate any reference to their alliance with that other country because uh, that can't be known. There just, there is, uh, I, I mentioned this quote at the end of the last program, this this never-ending present, the, the endless present. There is no past. There is no history. Everything's constantly being rewritten. There is only the, the endless present truth, which is determined by the party. And so that's Smith's job is to essentially rewrite history to fit with what the current truth of the party is. And you talked about him being inspired to write a diary and just the questions that he starts to ask about the past and history and demanding some answers and trying to ask older people if they remember what it was like before the revolution and his questioning the things that are written in their history books. It really does stem from the job that he has, understanding that you know he's rewriting history, and and he says it doesn't even bother him anymore because he doesn't feel like he's changing truth into lie, because who knows what it's the truth lies. ever was? It's all lies.
1: Right. It's all lies. <laughs> right. it's all lies. I, I I thought it was interesting where where uh, it, there's uh, this this chapter four talks about this act of fabrication, and it's about Big Brother. Now that to me is shocking. It's like he has to recur. He has to to rewrite something that Big Brother said to make sure it all fits with the narrative. And uh, uh, he, he says, well, how can I do that? He doesn't know how to do it. And so he just creates this whole new character that never existed. You know, this uh, is uh, Comrade Ogrevy. <laughs> so let's talk about Comrade Ogrevy a little bit. He doesn't even exist, and yet, and yet Winston is creating this whole scenario to cover up what Big Brother messed up. Right, it was just a grand work of fiction, because
0: part of his job is also to make certain people disappear. So if anyone commits treason against the party, so-called, and who knows if they actually committed treason at all, but those people have to be completely erased from the historical record. And then in the newspaper, if they were ever appearing in any type of document that could have any sort of a political bent, they had to be erased from those archives and replaced with something else, and so that was one instance where uh Winston had to just completely make up somebody new to fill the void in one of these uh, newspaper editions and he just talks about this this man who from as a child would only play with certain warlike toys, the toys yeah. and then he was a devoted spy as a child, and he advanced through all the ranks and was completely unselfish and devoted to the party his entire life until he died about the age of 20 uh fell down uh, like i guess he was a a pilot too, uh delivering messages across the ocean and he he fell into the ocean and purposely drowned himself so the enemy that was chasing him couldn't capture him and find the messages he was delivering so just
1: a total hero who never existed yeah (laughs) so so the thing is is you know one of the things that I think is hilarious after reading this it's not really hilarious, but it's true is that that President Trump is the only one other than maybe people on Fox News that's willing to stand up and say people are creating fake news all the time i mean they they're doing it we We know that they'll you know they'll they'll take cameras out and they'll they'll actually film something It's like actors know to make it look right and so so here to me what's impressive is here's someone in 1949 you know saw this as a reality and it's it's, as James was saying in our last program it's because he had a lot of dealings with the communists and they knew how to play the propaganda war and uh, I think I think Americans To be honest, we've had it so good, we've lived in a country where there has been a lot of truth, it's hard for us to, well, deal with the propaganda war. But it's taking place now all the time, every day. I just think uh, media, in particular TV
2: news, has been such a trusted institution in American history. You go back to some of the great broadcasters. Of history, you know your Walter Cronkites, right. people that the American people looked to for fair, unbi- uh, unbiased, balanced journalism for for news, and so I think as an institution, TV news occupies this really unique place in American culture, where because we have had people like a Walter Cronkite and we have had, um, you know. Journalists that really upheld that concept of I'm here to report truth, not my own personal opinions on things. There is sort of this inbuilt trust for what well, was said on TV news. And we have perhaps more of a skepticism, or at least uh, the older generation has more of a skepticism than for the Internet, because TV is trustworthy, but the Internet, you can go and change anything. And then my generation and the generation behind me have more implicit trust in the Internet, that anything you read on the Internet is true, right. because the in, the Internet has been the institution uh, in in my generation and the generation after me but there's this idea that if it's said in these formats, if it's said in these programs, it, it must be real. When in reality, if you want to take a step back and dig into it a little bit deeper, I mean, America's obsession with uh, reality TV, <laughs> I think you can see that that sort of need for, and, and uh, the free market entering into the news cycle where news stations have to compete against each other for ratings. And people are constantly trying to get some kind of edge. And so there has to be sensationalism. And there has you have to get clicks. You have to get eyes. And it's its become a battle for eyes, a battle for clicks. And so media in general, I think, has become less about presenting truth in a fair, unbalanced, unbiased way. And more about what's going to appeal to our base. And what's going to create more traffic and more eyes and more views and get our ratings up.
1: Right. I think its it's been to me what's been really shocking is with all these investigations now into what happened you know during President Trump's election first election you know what what was going on in the deep state you know with the FBI you know with uh, you know some of the the top leaders in the FBI and you know even with the the impeachment trial you know they kept so many things secret from Americans and uh you know there there were people that were you know investigated under oath, they actually told the truth, but then when they came out on television, they told an absolute lie, and that the reason is under oath, they could get sent to jail, but they could lie on television and and that should wake up everyone in this world that you know and uh, that hey, there's a good chance if you're watching a certain news broadcast, you could be being lied to and uh i think even my wife and i were talking about this you know i uh i grew up in a family that was um my i i mentioned this before i had two parents one was republican one was democrat and they would uh you know they they got along well i mean we we they took care of us we had you know a lot of good times you know but man if they got into a political discussion they they i remember one time they didn't talk to each other for 2 weeks and <laughs> it's like you know uh they'd play one off they'd play us off against the other, you know my dad wouldn't eat dinner, and he'd send me to the store to get him a sub, and then he'd say, "Hey, you can keep the change, you know, and my mom had already cooked dinner, and he just wouldn't eat it, you know, so we we hated getting caught in the middle of it, but I was thinking the other day, well, I was so carnal, I wanted that money, you know, <laughs> I should have stood up for my mother saying, Hey, she cooked dinner for you but but but, but anyway, but you know the point i'm trying to get, to get at is. You know, there there was this trust at one time, like you said, that we were being told the right thing, you know, on the news. But I don't know how you could, how you could see that today. And the, the thing is, is as, as, um, this whole thing. I really kind of got this bias against politics and against understanding how government works. And and the more I've done, like we when we were doing the Crowdhammer um, series, the more I realized that I really have shortchanged myself and not understanding politics, and not understanding you know, governmental history. And I'm the kind of person that's very easy to lie to me. Because if you don't understand the background, you don't know if you're being lied to or not. And so so how many people really out there understand the government even the way, let's say, Eric Blair or George Orwell did? I mean, he understood what was going on. Uh, you know, he, he considered himself a socialist, but he also worked you know, in the imperial police in Burma, and he knew some of the corruption that was going on in government, so it was not easy for him to be lied to. But he saw where a lot of people were easy, you know, easy targets for the lies. And, you know, the governments have, have all done it. They've all done their propaganda. And, you know, politicians do lie. And it's just something we should accept, but there's a lot of people in this country don't even know The constitution they don't even know our freedoms where they're listed and so it's easy for them to be lied to and it's easy i think especially for the young people haven't been trained that way to get caught up in a movement like black lives matter and and again we know and well i want to talk about this a little bit more in this program if we we have the time but we know the black lives matter isn't necessarily about black lives you know it's about what transgenderism it's about destroying the family you know it's about destroying the nuclear family and it's like they have an agenda but they don't want you to know their agenda
2: well and and we talked about this in the first program with these three uh sort of rallying cries the three sort of mottos of this orwellian society in 1984 um and we talked just briefly about the power of sort of those rallying cries, the power of those phrases. And uh, language, I think, is a really big theme through 1984. We've we've touched on it from times just new speak and, uh, you know, changing words that were acceptable. And, and Mr. Turgeon mentioned cutting words out of the vocabulary and things like that. And the reduction of the vocabulary was a very important part of Big Brother's government. They were constantly paring the vocabulary down. They were constantly producing new dictionaries and cutting words out. And so people like Winston Smith had to constantly be up on the new speak. What was the new version of the language? What words had been cut out of the language and deemed unacceptable? And it was interesting to me as well, because it makes me think about some of the things we see in society today that They specifically made use of um, abbreviations, that a lot of things in that society were abbreviated. And and in the appendix to 1984, where Orwell explains Newspeak um, and the different levels of it, he talks about the conscious choice to use abbreviations because an abbreviation even separates that thing even further from the context of its meaning. And, and so all of a sudden, that word doesn't carry the same contextual meaning that it had before. It doesn't conjure up these images that it would have before. It's just an item. It's just a thing. It's a very utilitarian thing at that. And just, you know, once you can control language, you start to be able to control thought. And that's kind of, The big brother aim there was how do we control thought how do we change people's thoughts if we want people to not think these things let's just remove those words from the vocabulary and in a couple generations that concept won't even exist anymore which mr turgeon touched on with freedom if if we just eliminate that as a word as a concept uh, with that particular shade of meaning then in a couple generations that concept won't even exist in the consciousness of the people
0: and ironically that's what journalists so called today are doing they're they're the ones who are actively cutting certain words out, saying that we can't use these words and we can't use these words. They're digging through tweets from people 17 years ago to find out what they might have ever said. I don't even think Twitter's been around that long, but but the the point remains just digging up what people said in the past and applying today's twisted standard to it and getting them in trouble. And it's just making people afraid to say anything because they could so easily get fired or publicly shamed have their lives ruined in some way and that's not journalism at all but you see pieces like that every day where they just target someone and try to destroy him it's just it's just unbelievable that that is what passes as journalism a lot of it just has to be laziness where they just sit at home and they watch a a video of a speech they write out a transcript of a small part of it, then they write something snarky, their own personal opinion, and then they post it, and that's it. And that takes five minutes, where an actual investigative piece, calling 30 sources, interviewing everybody, hunting like like a watchdog or, or like an attack dog for all the facts would take hours and months, and... It's just a lot more difficult. So that's really what journalism has become today in large part. So many of these people are actually just activists who are really just restricting language and, and shaming everyone into going along with insane ideologies. Yeah. And if,
2: uh, you know, it, like you were just saying, well, let's, let's take someone, you know, on the current scene, a politician or a community leader or something, and let's dig up something he said a decade ago. Well, that's become commonplace, and where's the next logical step for that to go? Let's dig up someone from history and measure them against our impossible goalposts that we've (laughs) set today and then completely discredit them. And that is what we're seeing right now is let's take every single person from history and measure them against our current liberal standards and see how they measure up. Oh, and if they don't measure up to our particular standards on something, cancel them.
1: Let's tear their stature down. (laughs) Let's tear it down. Well, I think for all of our listeners out there, it's Chapter 5 of Book 1 that you want to focus on. It's where, we, where uh, Syme is mentioned. And uh, he's, he's developing, I guess, the 11th edition of the Newspeak Dictionary. And, uh, you know, he's boiling down words where there's actually, uh, you know, like uh, I think William Shakespeare, Shakespeare used uh, uh, his, his language increased to 24,000 words. And uh, they're trying to get Newspeak down to like 10,000. You know, or they're, they're 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 gradually getting it lower and lower. And I think one of the quotes in the book, this is page forty three in my book, it says Syme was venomously orthodox. <laughs> you know, he's full of poison. You know, he, he he really thought the most exciting thing he could do in life was to develop Newspeak. And
0: that was the only time he was interesting to listen to for Winston <laughs> was when he started getting so passionate about cutting out words from the language turning uh, the opposite of good into ungood and removing the word bad entirely. Anything more than good would be plus good or double plus good. And that eliminates a whole spectrum of like 200 other ways to express that that each would be different and unique. But whenever you cut down the language like that, eventually it does get to the extreme where you can't even think anymore and you can't understand abstract concepts. You can't even articulate why someone who's lying to you is lying to you if if you don't have the words to express it, and therefore uh, lies reign supreme.
2: And right. it ruins creativity and individuality, which, I mean, we saw that in, you know, there's that age-old example that's thrown out now about, uh, you know, automobiles in East Germany versus West Germany. Um, and just the lack of creativity and, and and things like that. But I mean, there's even, you know, sort of getting ahead of myself here a little bit in, in the third book. There's uh, a, a poet who's arrested and he's arrested because he's trying to retranslate a Rudyard Kipling poem into Newspeak. And he can't. There's no word in Newspeak to fit the rhyme that would express the meaning the way that it was. There was no way for him to rewrite that Kipling poem. That fit the rules set by Newspeak, and so he just used the word that was there before
1: and got arrested for it. Wow! No individuality, no creativity. It's like the it's like the poet that gets killed in Julius Caesar, yeah, (laughs) because he has bad verses. (laughs) Senna. Yeah. So, but but you know, here Syme is trying to eliminate everything Chaucer wrote, everything Shakespeare wrote. You know, and the reason is is because it. Those, if you read Shakespeare, if you read Chaucer, if you read these great poets like Byron, it increases your level of thought because they're they're introducing new concepts for you to think about, and so so uh, you know it's it's really kind of crazy what's going on there. So that chapter five is good. All right, let's move on. We have some time here. Uh, let's move on. And let's talk about uh, some of the people that uh, Orwell decides to uh, introduce to us, uh, the people in Smith's life, I think we could say it that way. Let's talk about some of them uh, briefly, and then and then I want to do one more subject. Let's talk about the proles. But let's talk about, uh, again, he doesn't give us a lot of details about them, but uh, there's O'Brien, there's Julia, there's Catherine, and there's the family called the Parsons. So let's just... Let's talk a little bit about what we know about O'Brien here. Well,
0: O'Brien is a gigantic man who has gentle mannerisms, paradoxically. And he he seems like he's not totally swept away in emotional, irrational thinking like everyone else around them in the party. He's a high-ranking party member above Winston, who's just a regular party member. And then there's all the the other people outside of that. But O'Brien... A couple times Winston made eye contact with him or saw him adjusting his glasses in a particular way or saw O'Brien maybe hesitate before yelling at at, Goldst- at Goldstein during the two minutes of hate. So Winston starts to think, uh, O'Brien's like me, and he actually has some doubts about what's going on, and he might actually want freedom he might actually want to rebel against the party like i do deep down so that's sort of who o'brien is at this point in the story
1: yeah okay and
2: All then right. we've got julia she comes in in this book one she's a, a girl that i think works in the same area but doesn't work closely with him yeah. If I remember she correctly. works in the fiction department right that's right <laughs> and so he sees her because they work They both work in the Ministry of Truth, just in different departments. He sees her every now and then, and he keeps running into her in different situations, sees her in the streets, and he just has this general mistrust of her, and it kind of turns into a real hatred, even, um, where he thinks she might be a spy, he thinks that she might be thought police, she's trying to follow him, something like that. And uh, anyway, so she's a character that we'll learn a whole lot more about in book two, so I won't spoil any of that. Um, but she is brought in as sort of then this uh, antithesis to an O'Brien. O'Brien is somebody Winston feels like. This is somebody trustworthy, somebody I can align myself with. Okay. Julia is somebody that he does not trust, that he in fact has a hatred for because he thinks that she might be thought police looking to catch him in his uh, in his rebellious
1: thoughts. Right. The the, the other, I mean, maybe I'll just mention Catherine really quickly. I mean, we've read this before, all of us in the, I forgot about Catherine. <laughs> I forgot that he was actually married. She doesn't
2: come up very much. No,
1: yeah. no, but I, but I do think that uh, of course they're separated. This is chapter six, and uh, you know I, I do think what's interesting about you know uh, Catherine, and we'll probably talk more about this in our next program, but uh, you know Catherine is really a party girl. I mean, not likes <laughs> to party, but she's like really into the party. The party and the, the the thing is uh there's this whole section in chapter 6 where he uh uh again we'll probably save this for the women's panel but uh um she's really totally indoctrinated uh, uh, by the party and as, as as uh married couples their their only job in their marriage is to produce children for the state and they're not allowed to have love they're not allowed to enjoy sexual pleasure it's just totally has to be very clinical, you produce a kid and if you don't produce a kid you don't have a marriage and and the, the thing is if you if you look at Black Lives Matter now remember a, a lot of it is to support the LGBT community and the only way they can get kids is either through artificial insemination and, and even in the book it's called Artsem for newspeak mm-hmm. <laughs> you know artificial insemination uh, or they have to adopt and so so um, you know it's you can see how it's affected him you know in his life because he still wants to love somebody I mean he wants to fall in love he wants to be in love he wants to have a loving relationship with a wife and he can't have it in that society or what it appears. We'll just leave it at that now. So, so okay. Now, let's quickly talk about the Parsons. This this has got to be the comic relief in the book as far as I'm concerned.
0: Right. So there's this family, uh, the Parsons family, that lives right down the hall from Winston. And there's Victory this mansions. really, really hefty fella who's the dad. And he's he's completely in love with the party, doesn't know anything better than what the party indoctrinates him with then you have the mother who is like a thin frail broken 30 year old woman who seems like she's far older because of her miserable life and she just seems like she's constantly terrified of their two children they've got a nine-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl and these two children are an absolute nightmare and it's it's like this on purpose because of the party, because of the indoctrination of the state. Uh, there's a quote in here from from 1984. Uh, it says, By means of such organizations as the spies, they were systematically turned into ungovernable little savages. <laughs> and yet, this produced in them no tendency whatever to rebel against the discipline of the party. So the children were at any time able to just snitch on their parents even if their parents did nothing wrong their parents had to make sure they pleased the children at all time at all times basically served at the whim of their children or else the children could turn them in and their parents would disappear forever and this is what these children were taught by the party in these groups like the spies and and other groups as they got older so these children didn't have any discipline or child rearing because the parents were afraid of getting turned in or else the At least the mother was. The father was too dumb to realize that that was even a possibility. But it's interesting because today you hear politicians say things like, it takes a village to raise children. Well, what happens if you turn children over to the state? The family disintegrates.
1: Oh, yeah, yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's like I always think of climate control kids. (laughs) (laughs) Eventually they're going to turn their parents in. (laughs) <laughs> if they're not, if they're not uh, being really serious about climate control, well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's program. So next time we're going to move on to book two of the world famous classic 1984 by George Orwell, and we're going to invite the women's panel in to talk about book two. But I just want you to know that uh, uh, James and Grant are coming back for book three, and so we'll probably get into more discussion then on the paroles. So the next two programs will feature our women's panel. The first selection of our summer series has some eye-opening instruction as to what is happening right now in the Western world governments and also on your nightly news. So you can buy 1984 at Amazon.com. You can find a used copy of the book at abebooks.com. And, of course, you can check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to JBL at PCOG.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature one You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.